Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. We often take for granted the role language plays in communicating our favourite stories. And here in the West, there exists an unspoken expectation to be able to consume our favourite media in English. The necessity and importance of translation is a given. Writers producing work in English, but for whom English is their second language, are in a unique position. And we are lucky to be able to host two of them tonight in this episode. Yelena Donato and Joanna Papadopoulou, could you introduce yourselves to our audience and uh, talk a little bit about your books? Hi, uh, my name is Joanna and I am a, a Greek author based in Scotland. Uh, my book is uh, Winter Harvest, which is a dark fantasy mythology retelling about Demeter and uh, various myths, some well-known and some not so well-known about her. Hello, my name is Elena and I'm a writer from Croatia. Uh, my book is called Darkwood's Deep Water and it's a dark fantasy based on Slavic mythology and folklore. Amazing. Um, and this is really great because this is one of my favourite subjects to talk about. But, you know, both of your novels use your native folklore to engage with the themes that you're exploring. And we're really keen to ask you about that. Uh, But I'd love to start with some questions about the way that you both engage with the English language, which is the language you've chosen to publish your debut novels in. So how much interaction, you know, if any, is there between your native and your target language during the writing process? I mean, do you draft in one language and then end up publishing in another? How does it work? For me, there isn't really an interaction at the writing process, but uh, there is quite a lot in the inspiration part because I always find that inspiration comes for me a lot with music and I listen most exclusively uh, Greek music. So there's like an entire playlist of Greek songs that I would associate with my novel. But then because I live in an English-speaking country, I speak with my husband in English, my daily life is actually mostly English-speaking. I don't find anymore, at least, the need to go between the two languages in terms of the creative process. I I write in English from scratch, and it it doesn't work for me otherwise because I I live in Croatia and I'm surrounded by Croatian language, so that's that's the language I communicate in daily. So basically I have to shut it out if, if I want to write in English and I have to forget about it and just you know, sit down, focus, and, and write my stuff in English. The languages do not mix well. They are very different. They, they cannot run parallel to each other. So I have to choose one or the other. So if I want to uh, produce something in English, I, I just usually have to start writing in English from scratch. So why did you want to start writing in English from scratch? Like what made you want to sit down and, and write in English rather than in your native tongue? Well, for me... It's been a very long time since I consumed Greek literature, I would have to say. And in terms of Greek publishing, speculative fiction is nearly non-existing. So 
from a very young age to be able to read the genres that I like, I had to turn to English. So it kind of feels foreign to think of uh, fantasy, horror, science fiction, any kind of speculative fiction uh, in terms of Greek language. Like I find that incredibly cringy and incredibly uncomfortable for some reason that I don't know why. So it just didn't feel like it could be anything else. And I actually, I wouldn't trust myself to write in Greek anymore. I think my ability to speak Greek and write Greek is so greatly diminished by living and mostly experiencing the world in an English-speaking way the last 11 years. I'm I'm kind of sorry to hear that, but I'm also slightly horrified at the fact that there's no Greek speculative fiction arena when how many Greek mythology retellings are we seeing coming out of America especially? I mean, I, I... Every day I get sent another book to if I want to read it, and it's yet another Greek mythology retelling. So that's kind of irritating. Okay, to be fair, if you search, you probably might find one or two books, but generally growing up, it was either translations or eventually half the things wouldn't even be translated. Like the most annoying thing is that when I was a child, they would translate the first book of a series and they would not translate the rest. And it would take until I was good enough in English years later to read the continuation of the story, which really upset me. Mm. Yeah, this has happened to me with my work in German. They've only translated two books instead of all three. So (laughs) I still get angry German messages saying, please, is there another, is there like a third book coming? And I'm like, I'm so sorry. They don't think it sells enough. Yeah, depressing that it comes down to uh, just sales at the end of the day. So basically, uh, everything that Joanna said, there is Croatia is a very small market and, and the market that usually sells translations. So also there is, there is no, well, at least when I was starting out, there was no organic fantasy literature in Croatia. Now there is a community, but it's kind of too late for me because I, I grew up reading uh, books in English because that was the only way I could read the stuff I wanted to write, uh, to, to read and to write. And so writing in English was the next step. It was logical because writing fantasy in creation for me is, is just weird. It, it, would, it sounds like incredibly weird to me and strange. And, and I, just, I can't do it. I, I don't know why, because I, it might be, because all those books I read as a teenager influenced my brain and I started, you know, thinking of fantasy worlds as words, worlds written in English. That, that might be the case. I, uh, but I just, I can't write fantasy in creation. It's, it's impossible. So I just find that really fascinating that, that fantasy as a genre for you is so closely intertwined with the English language and the way that you kind of perceive fantasy uh, and and want to engage with it as a genre and the tropes and the archetypes that it embodies, that there's that really strong link to English. I, I don't know why, is, do you think that's, is that a global thing? I don't know whether that kind of exists in other cultures as well. I mean, we talk about Tolkien, for example, being the, the grandfather of fantasy and certainly Tolkien and his work is have you know been massively influential in shaping the the more kind of i suppose stereotypical or tropish kind of elements of fantasy elves dwarves those sort of the hero's journey kind of motifs but i i yeah it's as a native english speaker it's not something i kind of stop to really consider the, the kind of englishness of the genre in terms of greek i think 
there is this kind of false idea that fantasy, because it's so close to fairy tales and to folklore, although there is a vocabulary for it, and it's a very unique vocabulary with very unique ideas, it's uh, seen as something for children. So it doesn't quite translate in terms of the Greek publishing world, which is exceptionally small and has taken a very large hit for an adult audience. So even I think the translations sometimes struggle with how to market an adult fantasy book because it's odd in a sense for the kind of society that Greece is and the kind of readership that Greece has according to what at least the publishers perceive. And I see that even in the bookshops, like the bookshops also struggle in some sense, at least when I was living in Greece and I was growing up, they seem to struggle a little bit with what do you do with a fantasy book that is too graphic for children, but is also not your average readership in Greece. And I don't know how true that is. I don't know how much there is actually like data that supports this, but I feel that this is how it's perceived. And then for me, as a reader, eventually I had to give up on uh, Greek translated works because it was just cheaper and easier to read them in English. And eventually then I moved into the UK where there is no Greek <laughs> literature to buy in the same way. And there's not really an ebook market for Greek books. So it just eventually became harder and harder for me to consume Greek literature apart from ancient texts. And also, I think in Croatian, there is a problem with translation. When translators take fantasy novel, uh, sometimes they, they use this archaic language, which sounds really weird in Croatian, because it's like, it's like you know, if, if you try to write a fantasy novel in, in English, but using the 19th century language, that's, that's the way it sounds. I don't know why they do it. I mean, I think that because it's, you know, it's, it's fake medieval worlds, they think that the language has to sound old. Uh, but it, it doesn't sound right in, in Croatian. It doesn't sound organic. And I, I, I catch myself thinking about the language while I read the book, which is really bad because then you don't, you don't have the chance to actually read the story. And I think that that bothers me a lot. I, um, and those are the things that happened earlier. Nowadays, there are better translators and better translations. But it's as I said before, it's I think it's too late for me. If I may also add, I just wanted to say that I think partly on what Yelena said is that because we don't produce the kind of literature that would be using that vocabulary as the organic vocabulary, then it feels really odd to see these terms translated into the equivalent Greek or Croatian, because they're not exactly the same and you're doing the closest equivalent, but you're not quite used to seeing it as what that is. So what we might think of as the nymphs or the fairies is actually quite different from the more central uh, European idea, but it is the closest we have in our language. But yet this original idea of what they are is never expressed in literature correctly. So it just always feels that you're seeing these words in an incorrect context. It was interesting what Yelena was saying, because in, in Italy, where I live at the moment, when they have novels, they use a very specific kind of tense that you don't use in spoken Italian and only in literary Italian, which to me just doesn't make any sense. Because when you're writing, say, in, in English and your writing teachers will tell you about, you know, making dialogue sound natural and trying to establish that sort of realism to it, 
it seems very odd to me that you have an entire country that reads books specifically written in an unnatural way. Uh, so yeah, I, I find that very interesting. But that's the thing I was I was trying to tell you about, you know, the differences between Croatian and English and how the languages are not parallel. In English, you use all your tenses. I mean, if you have a tense, you use it. In Croatian, we don't. We have past tenses that are not used in everyday language. They're just not. They're, you know, they're taught in school and children learn to recognize them, but nobody uses them nowadays. Well, translators use them. The same thing as, you know, in, in Italian. I speak a bit of Italian, so I know what, what, what you're talking about. So it sounds really strange when you see them in, in books. It sounds unorganic and, and it sounds archaic. And I think that's a huge problem. Yelena, you talked a bit about the burden of cultural context on your blog. And I've, I've read a couple of your posts now about this topic, that about the, I guess, it's the struggle to communicate kind of ideas and concepts between cultures when you've basically got one language to use um, and how that can sometimes not work particularly well. I don't know if you, you both have, have kind of struggled with this or, or wrestled with this idea, but I wondered if you could explain a little bit more about that. Well, I think that in, in this sense, Joanna is, is in a better position because she comes from a much bigger culture. So we all know something about Greece and, and Greek history and Greek myths. Whereas when it comes to Croatia, I, I don't think you know a, a single Croatian folk story or myth or, or anything. So basically, if, if I want to use that, um, I, I have to not just write in English. I have to translate the story itself. I have to translate the meaning. I mean, maybe, you know, the, the simplest parallel here is that, for example, if, if, I, if I talk about something happening in, in London and if I say that someone lives in Mayfair, you know, you, you have an idea of who that person might be, right? But if I say that that person lives in, in some part of Zagreb, you'll have absolutely no idea what that means. And the same thing is with history, with folklore, with mythology, with culture. So everything I use, I have to find a way to explain without info dumping. And that's, you know, that's an additional task when you, when you write about your own. For me, I think it's partly true what Yelena said, that yes, I'm lucky that there is preconception of what Greece is, and especially ancient Greece. But at the same time, I think that this kind of sometimes works in a negative way as well, that because there is this preconceived idea, it's very difficult for people to accept that Greece is not as Western as sometimes people think it is. It has had a huge Eastern influence because Greece is really close and has really strong ties with cultures like Turkish uh, culture and uh, has always been as a culture very much uh, in between three continents in a sense. There's always been influences from Africa, there's always been influences from Asia and from Europe. So although the ancient world and what I wrote, I think, doesn't suffer from that as much because the ancient world is a bit easier for a mainstream English-speaking audience to understand. I still see some of the comments in uh, the first reviews I've seen from my books that really struggle with how femininity is perceived in Greece and how my feminine characters are 
explored in the book and I found it even more in short stories I've written that go furthermore into modern Greece that this idea of what it is to be part of a family, what it is to be Greek, what it is to be normal is not quite fitting within a mainstream European or English-centric, American-centric, I don't know what the right word is, because the kind of class, because this Western side has whitewashed in some way uh, Greek history and ancient Greek, even ancient Greek history and ancient Greek mythology. And one of my greatest fears is that this too will come clashing. And there's definitely going to be some readers that find that difficult because I'm speaking about it from a Greek perspective and a Greek perspective that has had thousands of years in between looking at those myths. I'm not writing as an ancient Greek woman thinking of ancient Greek. I'm writing as a modern Greek person that has lived abroad looking at the myths that I grew up with and heard retellings of from my own family who put their own ideas in them and jokes and songs and an everyday experience of mythology that nearly becomes folkloric. I feel like this is a a good time to ask you a bit more. You know, you started to actually speak about your work and your your experience with debuting in this genre and I know, you know, I just read Yelena's post about this idea of, you know, some of the, you were saying some of the readers were engaging with your work in ways that you hadn't anticipated. I particularly thought this was the interesting when you mentioned that the, the title, Darkwood's Deep Water, and that the title you think says what it's about and people are still surprised. And, but I, what I really thought was so interesting is that you, you talk about the the unfairness, you said the lack of catharsis, the casual cruelty of the world. And I love that. I love the fact that that's, that is a darkness, but it's not what, maybe it's not what we think is a darkness. Maybe we're just used to thinking that grimdark or dark books feature nihilistic characters or enormous wars or bloody conflicts, but not this more subtle sense of so of kind of ongoing social injustice. So I wanted to ask you a bit about that. Well, I think that it, it comes from, from my experience. And I mean, I don't want to go into that too deeply because it probably requires too much psychology for me. But I grew up while my country was at war. And then I grew up in a post-socialist, early capitalist society. And this sense of, of doom, of unfairness, of bad out- outcomes, of, of bad things happening to good people, that's something we have to live with every day. I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's a coincidence that in my book I have two war veterans walking around and they're, they're like, they're traumatized incredibly. They just don't speak about it. But I think that I've built into them something that I, I feel and I'm surrounded with um, all the time. And I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how much Anglo-American readers can pick that up. I mean, the, the world is at the moment a, a pretty ugly, screwed up place for, for everyone. But I'm, I'm not sure if they can understand how much unfairness and how much you know, uh, injustice there is and, and how much I've put it into my book. Although it's like a completely you know, made up secondary world, I think that all the experiences are basically real and all the 
feelings, my own feelings about the world and, and about the outcomes are, are real. And I think that some, some people get like disappointed with that or, or even offended. Like, you know, why, why, why did those things happen to those characters? They didn't deserve it. Well, like nobody deserves it, but it just happens. And that's why I think that's exactly why my book is, is dark. That's why I call it horror because that's the horror of human existence. <laughs> I'm getting very philosophical here, but that's, that's something I, I really want to point out and, and say about my book. You know, I loved your book. I I thought it was really, really unusual and extremely refreshing to read that. But it, yeah, it, I think the word horror elicits in me a completely different, I suppose my kind of gut reaction to the word horror is to think of slasher movies, to think of body horror, to think of haunted houses, psychopaths wielding giant weapons to cut people up like that's the sort of and I think that is that's the cultural context or the the kind of media context that I bring with me when someone says oh I've written a horror book and I think maybe that's it's really such an interesting discussion to have because I think there there is a it's not a misunderstanding but it, it just highlights the ways that different cultures bring their own preconceptions to to a, to a book that's called a fantasy or a book that's called a horror. And it's, I think we'd all just be better off if we tried to leave some of those at the door, you know, before we <laughs> open the cover. But that's, yeah, I'm, I'm just, it's, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that because it's not something that I think is discussed that often. And we're a podcast who, you know, says that we discuss science fiction, fantasy and horror. And it's like, well, maybe we should go back to the drawing board and redefine what we mean by these terms. I mean, if, if I tell you that, you know, my first horror inspira- inspiration is, is Franz Kafka, then, you know, you can, you can understand what I'm, well. what I'm trying to say. You know, he, it's, it's not gore, it's not blood, it's not murder. It's just, you know, being an individual in a very, very cruel world. What about you, Joanna? Like, do you have any things that you felt like when you were writing your book that you felt like didn't quite mesh or you could you found it difficult to sort of translate ideas or thoughts that you'd had around these greek stories for sort of um, a native english speaking audience or as we sort of touched on before because people think they know a little bit more about greece do they did you do you find it maybe even harder to if you wanted to overturn some of those preconceptions maybe yeah, no, I definitely thought that it's going to upset some people because I think uh, Demeter has not really appeared in ancient literature, has not really had a moment for her to be the heroine of the story as far as I can think. I couldn't think of one. And I always found it, and that was part of my inspiration for this, that what I saw Demeter and what other people saw Demeter in Greece from when I was a child, was very different to that crying mother that was primarily portrayed in the westernized Anglo-centric audience. So I very much think that the book is is something that's going to be difficult for people to understand when you're trying to find that poor mother. And although she is there, she's a poor mother that does horrible things. And she's a poor mother to one child, but not to all her children. And I think because 
Demeter is so connected with Persephone. People forget that she has an entire mythology outside of that one child. And uh, I think that, although not in terms of context as much, but in terms of characterization, I think it's going to be a struggle for some people that are looking to see this as a feminist retelling where Demeter is kind of like triumphing at the end. I don't think people will be will be getting exactly that. She does win, in my opinion, but there's always a cost. And I think that's going to be quite difficult for people to come to terms with. This idea that is a very Greek idea, which is that there is a lot of preconceived notions of femininity and she's fighting against them. But these preconceived notions of femininity in a cultural context are not very Western. I think this might be a great opportunity to ask you both, actually, about how, I mean, okay, I just said we're a podcast on science fiction, fantasy and horror, but really above that, we're we're a podcast on intersectional feminism. And we want to hear about how writers today are engaging with this idea in these topics. And you, you talked about preconceived ideas of femininity. Still today, we're still struggling with this. And yeah, I, I would you like to kind of elaborate on, you know, how you engaged with some, you know, some of the topics that we we do tend to raise on this podcast a lot, like the ideas of, of patriarchy. If I can go first. So I very much come from a culture that is still quite patriarchal, still very much uh, following that family unit where the father is very much the paterfamilias, uh, the the head of the household in so many senses. And a lot of the depictions of femininity in Greek media, to some extent, more, more than others, and it does change as time goes on, but what I grew up with does still have that element very much. And I also grew up with a lot of ideas of uh, that uh, women do the... Women make the table, women do the dishes, it's a woman's job to clean, it's a woman's job to do the laundry, it's a woman's job to take care of some elements of the house that it's not a man's job to do. And within the book, although it doesn't go into these details of the specifics, Demeter is seen as someone that should have a passive power and should have a kind of abstract sense of power and everybody's trying to kind of show her that that's her place and she kind of accepts it for the sake of the child but the moment her child is going to be forced into this world and I do want to note here that uh, in terms of the ancient texts Persephone is not meant to be a grown woman She's meant to be just of marriageable age, which in ancient Greece could be as young as 13, 14. So it's a very vulnerable child. So even there, the idea of what makes you a woman and when you are a woman is um, coming into focus and is clashing with a lot of Western ideas. And I've specifically not focused on that, but constantly characters are questioning Demeter's femininity because there's that element of transformation and she keeps trying to fight this patriarchal status of what is meant to be right, who is meant to be the leader. She specifically says that when they were in the stomach, within that nurture element in Cronos, says Hestia was the leader of their family. And yet when they come into the world and come into power, this position is swapped. 
and she is expected to breed. She is expected to marry. She is expected to share power. But no man is expected to share power with her. I have to say that, first of all, I mean, Croatia is, is following the, the current Western trends, so we're getting more conservative, actually, which is a shame, but it's it's happening here and it's happening everywhere and it's frightening. I'm horrified by it, but I, I, I don't know how to how to respond to it other than in writing. And, you know, since I, since I write a secondary historical world uh, where, you know, there is, there is war and there is, uh, you know, male strength is important um, and there is obviously no birth control, you, you always end up with patriarchy, some form of it. You, you can't accept that if you, if you want to make a plausible world. I, I tried to write my female characters in, in a way that they oppose it, or at least they demonstrate how bad it is for them. And obviously I have, I have two, two main uh, female characters, and Alicia is the one who's trying to, you know, trying to be a, a, a pick-me girl, who's trying to play along, and it, it, it doesn't end well for her in that sense. Uh, basically, she, she is trying to you know, fulfill all the expectations and she believes in all the, you know, fairy tales uh, patriarchy serves to her and, and it, it doesn't end well for her because of that. And so um, until she realizes that she has to do something for herself, she's basically helpless. And then on the other hand, we have Ida, who, who is, I think, favorite character to most of my readers, who is uh, not just fighting against it, but I, I, I like her very much because she sees it clearly and she uses it to her own um, advantage. She's aware of the fact that she lives in a world where she has, that, that, where no power will be given to her, that she has to take it. And I, I like her because she, she's not afraid to take it. I, I wrote her in, in that way that she will use any means to get what she wants. And that doesn't necessarily make her immoral or bad because she lives in a world that is not kind to her and that is not going to give her anything. So I think there are both sort of mirrors uh, that show different reflections of of patriarchy in, in that world. You also have a bit of a class narrative going on there, how one of your characters obviously comes from a more well-to-do background. She's been given most things as a child and has been raised in a certain level of affluence. And then Ida, of course, is the the opposite of that and has had to fight for every scrap that she can get. Um, That's one of my favourite scenes, actually, watching her, you know, in the beginning, try to kind of, you know, get the... um, well, I don't want to go into her. Yeah, I don't want to spoil any book. So <laughs> I'll just say it's one of my favourite scenes of her trying to get her, you know, feet under her and get ahead in life. Um, but of course, you just said that she does it all herself and she knows that there's no one going to help. There's there's no one else out there for her. But yeah, I wondered if if there were other themes feeding into that as well, that, you know, that there is this sort of, because I, I mean, this is looping it a little bit back to, to English. Um, we are... Yeah, we're infamous for our class system and what that does to our society and how it influences the the creative media that we produce as a country. I, I used to work in a household of an English duke, so oh, I, God. I know all about it. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> that's, that's my dirty little secret. No. Uh, <laughs> 
but yes, I, I, I was aware of the, of, of the class. And I mean, although I am like, I grew up in, in different systems. So I, I, I grew up first in, in socialism and then in capitalism. And then I, I, I saw the, the English class system. As, as you surely noticed, I, I did build a, a pretty uh, a firm class system in, in my novel. It's, it's basically a feudal system. Uh, but I think I try to make it not idealize it. I think I, I try to make to make it as realistic as as possible and to give some sort of social mobility to to my characters. And I mean, I'm I'm not done with Ida. She's she's going to go places after this novel. So obviously, you know, she will find a way to you know make her life better. Um, but I think that I did, I still did keep this idea of, you know, an, a noble hero to a certain extent, although in a very cynical, very deconstructed way, I think, because it, it shows all the weaknesses of, of that idea. And I think it shows the price you have to pay for it. And I think it shows that even if you do everything right, Things still go wrong, so you know I, I I try to examine and and toy with all these ideas that that are so common in fantasy. You know the, the ideas of nobility, heroism, the ideas of saviors, and things like that. And I think I think I've I've managed to to sort of de- deconstruct uh, a few of them. It occurred to me the other day that I'm quite guilty for like I suppose unconsciously subscribing to the noble hero to the idea of of class systems i mean like the two novels i've just written uh all the protagonists are royal i mean we're looking at two royal families and uh i don't really know why i did that <laughs> because it it seemed like i don't know it was but it just it makes you question you know like what why why have i immediately you know made my heroes come from bloodlines and bloodlines you know especially in the new book coming out next year is is a real part of the power in in the blood and take that idea too far and you get into some really dark places and it, yeah it's it's kind of worrying because you think that there's a lot of this is slightly off topic but there's a lot of com- kind of chat around the idea of um, working class writers not being able to publish and to be able to pursue a career in writing because of their economic issues. I mean, I'm not, I don't come from money myself, uh, which is why it's slightly alarming that, you know, I feel drawn to these, to writing characters that come from noble lineages. You know, I just, it's very strange. I wonder whether it's baked into the the kind of national fabric, like the, the cultural identity of, of this country. Just a random thought. No, I think it, it, it definitely is. And I've, I've never seen a more firm class system than, than the, the British one. And this might be my Croatian thing. I do have, obviously, I do have royal blood. I have, I have royals in my book. But they are punished for it. And, you know, their heritage is the, the worst one to have, basically. They do have privilege, obviously, but they have to pay a, a very high price for it. And I think I, I always put something like that in my stories. Like, I never take it for granted. And I'll, I'll never write a character who's noble just because he's royal. That's, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. And that might be just because I'm from some different culture. For me, I think it's that 
it's so old, I think, and it's I've seen it in many cultures, not just uh, in British culture, but even if you look at Greek mythology, the hero is always descended from a god in some way. They're always a side, a kind of lineage that gives you that power. And in my book, I specifically have a scene where Demeter undermines that noble birth just to spite a queen. We like the undermining of noble birth. <laughs> you mentioned fantasy as a genre full of weird names. Have you ever made up shit uh, in English? Because that might be a kind of, yeah, that's quite strange for me because thinking about you know writing in a language that isn't mine and then also inventing in a language that isn't mine yeah i mean i i didn't i didn't invent things in in english but i i just i just wanted to say that i i put a bunch of creation words in which you like english readers might find like really strange and unpronounceable and i thought it was like a very fun thing to do because that's you know that's your perception of slavic languages something you cannot pronounce uh, and I said, okay, so I'm going to put some words in and I'm going to have fun with that. I on purpose used uh, a kind of uh, spelling that wouldn't be the more anglicized spelling. So there's a lot of Ks where you might have expected a C or a, a lot of endings of uh, words and people that as the Greek ending instead of the English ending. So for example, sirens is Sirenus. So I've on purpose kept the more Greek version of those words just to kind of emphasize the Greekness. So I think for somebody looking at the at the names, they might find them a touch odd, but also familiar. No, I'm just really interested in it because um, obviously coming from writing secondary world fantasy, I had to make up some words. I mean, like Starborn, the is, is a totally made up word, but this is what is great. I think I was writing some notes about this episode and I think I, what did I say? It was something like, I think conveyability, but I'm not even sure if conveyability is a word, but you know what I mean when I say it. I was like, things that have to be conveyed, conveyability, it works. <laughs> but this is what's great about English is you can kind of just, you know, you can make a verb out of almost any noun. <laughs> yeah, and I think for me, because Greek obviously uses a different alphabet, it's so difficult sometimes to transliterate because I think of the word and the word is in a different alphabet. So it's much harder even to put it in the English word and be true to how to pronounce it and things like that in a way that maybe if you use the more Roman uh, style alphabet, it wouldn't be like that. It's funny to think about speculative fiction and then, you know, throwing in Greek word or Croatian word as kind of the the othering of that, you know, the, an alien language or something just that, that is magical, something that means you can put a meaning to it. Because a lot of English writers who, who do that, we, you know, we tend to go to Latin and you just throw in like a Latin word to make it somehow magic or whatever. So it does seem to, you know, it kind of makes sense that you then can use your other language skills, even if it's your native language skills, but as a, as a way of bringing in that kind of, I suppose we would think of it as a kind of magical, mystical, mysterious element, but for you, it's just your normal everyday language. I, I think that Croatian readers, once they get their hands on this book, are just going to laugh their heads off. Like when they see that I use like, common 
everyday Croatian words, which probably sound exotic to, to English-speaking uh, uh, readers, such as uh, gospodar for, for lord or gospa for lady or things like that. Uh, <laughs> I think they're going to find it like incredibly funny. And I'm sort of a bit embarrassed. Uh, and, and, you know, I expect them to say like, why are you treating your language as an exotic thing? And I'm just going to say, well, you know, it's, it's for the you know, English readers. They don't, they don't know shit. So <laughs> that's why I did it. I love those words. I, it worked on me, let's just say that. I was like, oh, <laughs> this, this does not read like one of those typical, typical fantasy books. It immediately like makes it more interesting and magical. So, you know, I think that's great. If language can do that and if, if a living language can do that and, you know, and, and elicit that sort of response in, in another person, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> I think that ESL writers are uh, more comfortable writing secondary worlds because the readers and the writers start from scratch. Like even there is some cultural background imported, uh, you are still a foreigner in a secondary world and, and your readers are, they expect to be ignorant when they enter it. So you can start building from, from the ground up. Whereas if as a, as a foreign writer, you, you write about things that are familiar to you, uh, you can get yourself in, in deep trouble because you don't know enough. So I think in that sense, speculative fiction is is a really nice playground for us to, to test our ideas and to build worlds. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And actually, one of the things I did in my novel is that I on purpose used a lot of Greek locations because I always felt that when people write Greek mythology retellings that are set in Greece and people seem not to focus on locations a lot, so I specifically used, like, and I did a lot of research as to which mountain this happened on, which cape this happened on, which river was that. And I specifically inputted a lot of Greek uh, places because I felt that a lot of times the Greek mythology retellings kind of use Greece as a generic playground, but it's a real place and has real specific locations that these things happen. And these are the origin names of these exact places that people visit, that people live in. This is the origin stories of who we are. So I kind of wanted to represent as much as I could the areas and the specific places that were mentioned in all the different uh, sources that I encountered. And it also, just to mention, because I always thought I was interesting, because Demeter hasn't appeared in ancient Greek literature as much as other gods, the biggest sources I've gotten about her were from geographers. That's just really interesting um, and why it's so important to be broad in your research. Yeah, no, you had to use geographers that yeah. traveled around. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's really, it's really vital. I mean, like I, my sister song research, uh, the reason I set it where I set it was because I was reading um, a local archaeology report done by people who aren't even a you know, recognised society. They were just local amateurs who were really interested in it. And they'd done this report and published it on some dark corner of the internet. And, you know, I found it and thought, hey, I can use that. So yeah, it does. it's rather a giveaway, isn't it? That it's people based, say, in America who've never actually been to Greece. <laughs> we're going to write a Greek book, Greek mythology, but I have no idea what the real Greece actually looks like. Yeah. I can see this being a problem. But it's a great place to wrap up because, you know, uh, I think you've sold both your books beautifully to us. Um, they're both out 
very soon from Ghost Orchid Press. I think um, Darkwood's Deep Water is out in a few days. So possibly even by the time this episode airs, uh, this book will be available. And Winter Harvest is November, correct? Is that right? Yes, 21st of November, it's coming out. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.